The rest of y'all sitting out there, y'all, y'all men acting like you walking crying, you not slick. I see you. <laughs> I got a cold, that's why I'm sniffing. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Any of y'all ever watch the uh, television show uh, Undercover Boss? You ever seen that show Undercover Boss? If you haven't seen Undercover Boss, you owe it to yourself to watch at least one episode of this show. It is wonderful. Um, what they do, if you haven't seen it, I'll get over this cold in a minute, y'all, I promise. Um, what they do, if you haven't seen it, is the usually the CEO of a company, the CEO or one of these top-ranking officials in a company, will come in and they'll go work with the rank and file throughout the company. Um, one of my favorite things when I was still in Athens was there was this frozen yogurt place called Minchie's. I don't know why they named it that, but it was delicious frozen yogurt. Um, they did an episode of this with Minchie's, and the, the owner and CEO of Minchie's put on the little apron and went in and went to be trained by one of his employees. And he started the thing. He knows how to do all of it. But he goes in, and they always, without fail, they have one person who's just there. They are a model employee. I hope you can hear all the sarcasm in my voice. They are a horrible employee. They don't want to be there. They don't do things the way they were taught to do them. They usually badmouth the company while they're training this new worker and tell them why, oh, this is all the reasons I hate working here. Blah, 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 blah. They have no idea that they're talking to the CEO. And then they usually have another employee who actually is a model employee, and they're, you know, in between, you know, you know they've been working there for a while. They're just trying to do their best, and it's usually a very thankless job. Like, a lot of times they'll show you the janitor, and the janitor just, like, does his job wonderfully. I did this at a... At a Popeyes one time, the, the hardest worker in the entire establishment was the janitor who kept everything just pristine and clean. He'd been doing it for like 15 years um, without fail. And at the end of the episode, they bring all these workers in that have been working with the CEO this whole show, and he comes and sits down at a table with them, or she comes and sits down with them, and reveals who they are. And once they realize who they've been visited by, they either have this wonderful, joyous reaction, oh my goodness, this is great, because of the way they responded to him, or you see the color drain out of their face until it's about the color of this you know, barrier wall between the piano and the rest of you, um, no matter what color it started as, because they're terrified. Because they realize, oh my goodness, I was visited by the boss, and I, I did not behave the way I should have behaved in front of the boss. I told him that the company he owns was trash. I told him that this was a miserable place to work. I told him that I make a habit of stealing yogurt <laughs> while I'm here. <laughs> and various things happen, and justice is dealt at the end of the show. Knowing who somebody is and who visited you ought to kind of determine the way you react to them. 
You know, you probably treat your, you probably work a little bit harder when the boss is in the room, don't you? You shouldn't. You should work that hard all the time. But you probably work a little bit harder when the boss is in the room. Well, we've been in Galatians 3, verses 19 and 20 for a couple of weeks, and Paul is going to begin to close up his argument as to why the law is inferior to the new covenant. And the way he's going to do it today is he's going to talk to us about how we receive the law and how we receive the new covenant in the first place. Who brought us what? Who visited us with what? And I think we'll see at the end of the day that when the boss shows up, He's due his respect. So stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's word. We're going to read verses 19 and 20 again. We will be having our our memory recitation after this service since we've been here for three weeks. You should know it by now. Um, Not really. Uh, But we're going to read verses 19 and 20, but we're just going to focus on the the last third of 19 and verse 20 today. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Father, I pray that we would leave today with an appreciation for the lengths you went to to bring us these new covenant promises. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. I tried to be as blunt with my title as I could, so I named the sermon Jesus is Greater Than Angels. And you know what? He is. I just turned my microphone on. That's wonderful. Um, Jesus is greater than angels. When you look in your Bible and you notice that you've got the Old Testament and the New Testament, testament is another word for covenant. I know we're all Christians. We've heard the word covenant before. Um, Covenant is an agreement made between uh, two people. It's kind of a contractual uh, agreement um, where one party agrees to something with the other. Sometimes there are conditions. Sometimes, in the case we'll see today, there are not. Uh, But Old Testament and New Testament are really just other words for Old Covenant and New Covenant. The Old Covenant was the covenant that Paul is referring to here as the law. The law was given at Mount Sinai and contained 600-something odd rules about what you were going to do if you were going to be righteous and pure before God. No one ever kept it. No one was ever able to. So there was the sacrificial system that was part of the law to provide atonement for everyone's mistakes throughout the Old Covenant. The New Testament, the New Covenant, well, that was enacted in, in hymn number 152 when Christmas had its cradle and Easter had its cross. When the blood was shed at Calvary, that was the blood that began the new covenant for us. So, I want us to see today, in the last section of these two verses, why Paul says this new covenant is superior to the old one. And that is because Jesus is greater than the angels who administered the old one. We're just going to look at two points today. And first, we're going to see that the gospel is greater than the law, greater than the old covenant, because of its delivery. Now, in a quick recap, in the first part of verse 19, we saw that the law was added to bring our sin to the surface and teach us that we are broken people. Now, I don't know about y'all, it doesn't take me long living during a day to realize I'm a broken person. That not everything in me works the way it should do. Not everything in me even works the way I want it to. 
That I can even want to do the right thing and I don't always do it. We're broken people. We all share that experience. Whether or not we want to admit it all the time, there are days that you knew something was the right thing and you did the wrong thing anyway, aren't there? Yeah. If the reason we do that is because we're broken people. That, <clears throat> I was going to say that doesn't make you a bad person, but it actually does. Um, all of us are bad people. That makes you normal. You know, normal people are bad people. We're broken people. We don't do the right thing even when we know what it is. That's the reason the law was added to us, to show us this about ourselves. It was never intended to give us life. It was never intended to give us a relationship with God. It was intended to show us why we could not have a relationship with God on our own. Which brought us to our second purpose of the law, that the law was only intended to accomplish its purpose until Jesus arrived to solve the issue that the law brought to life. The law brings to to light the issue that we are sinful, broken people, but it doesn't provide a way for us to fix that. Jesus is God's way of fixing that in us. That the law prepares us for Jesus, and then Jesus solves our sin issue by taking it on himself and dying on the cross and giving us his life. And today, we see that the law the second half of 19, was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. The law, the old covenant, was appointed by angels by the hand of a mediator. We're going to split that in two and talk about the angels, and then we're going to talk about the mediator. Now, when was the law given? If you want to read in your Bible, and if you take notes, get your pen ready. Because there are other verses I'm going to read today that are not on your handout because they are not application points, but you might want to go back and reference them later. If you want to see the law given, the actual event, you're going to find that in Exodus 19. That's where the law was given. Uh, If you've ever seen the Ten Commandments, this is when they have come to the foot of Mount Sinai and there's fire and there's smoke and there's earthquakes and there's Charlton Heston's beard and there's all kinds of intimidating things. In Exodus 19, the mountain is scary. Well, Paul tells us that one reason that the mountain looked the way it did is because it was literally covered in angels. God's army has lit on this mountain. Say, well, wait a minute, Josh. I'm going to go, and I'm going to go read Exodus 19, and I don't see a single word about angels there. Well, that's okay. I have more Bible for you. Genesis 30, or Genesis, not Genesis. Deuteronomy 33, verse 2. The Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came with ten thousands of saints, and from His right hand came a fiery law for them. If you read the New American Standard... The Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran and he came from the midst of 10,000 holy ones. And at his right hand there was flashing lightning for them. Very similar in the ESV. He came from the 10,000s of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. If you want to know why there are differences between those verses, it's because some of them are working from a more recent Hebrew copy of the text. Some of them are working from a Greek translation of an older text. But either way, the consensus interpretation throughout history has been that one of the reasons that Sinai was the way it was was when God came to meet Moses to give the law, he was accompanied by a huge heavenly army. 
that there were a bunch of angels there. So Deuteronomy 33.2 tells you where you see those angels. And then if you want to see New Testament on this, Acts chapter 7, verse 53, Stephen is giving his uh, big address to all the people who are about to stone him. And he condemns them and says, who have received the law by the direction of who? Angels. And have not kept it. So the... The understanding was that this law was basically mediated, for one, by angels. Uh, that the angels came down to Mount Sinai at the giving of the law, and they were somehow involved in the giving of the law to these people. Now, <clears throat> what is an angel? Angels are created beings. They are not eternal beings. They did not exist forever with God. They exist because God made them, just like us. He made, he made them like he made us. He did not make us identical, okay? We'll see that in just a second. Angels are created beings. Second, they are not humans who have died and gone to heaven, okay? When someone dies and goes to heaven, they do not become an angel any more than when somebody dies and goes to hell, they become a demon, that's not the way it works. Um, angels are different beings other than humans. Angels get their English name from the Greek word angelos. There you go. That's what it's, we literally get the word angel from the Greek word angelos. That's where we get it from. Uh, they generally function, as the Greek word implies, as messengers or representatives of God that you can refer to someone in Greek, and it happens all the time in ancient Greek, where someone who is a messenger is referred to as someone's angelos. It's someone who has gone to deliver a message for someone else or as a representative of someone else. <clears throat> now, sometimes messengers brought a message. They tell you something. Sometimes, if you want to think back to the old gangster mafia movies, Sometimes instead of bringing a message, they send a message. You understand what I mean when I say that? You say, go, go watch the old mafia movies. Yeah, I'm going to go, go, go send them a message. That's never a good thing. You know, when an angel comes to send a message, it's God letting folks know, hey, I'm on the war path right now and I'm serious. How tough are angels? Let me share a couple of these with you. You can make a note if you want to go read these terrifying stories for yourselves. 2 Samuel chapter 24, verses 15 and 16. So the Lord sent a plague upon Israel from the morning till the appointed time. From Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men of the people died. And when the angel stretched his hand out over Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the destruction and said to the angel who was destroying the people, It is enough. Now restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aaron of the Jebusite. How many people did one angel kill in that passage? 7,000 by himself. You don't want to play with this guy, do you? No. How about this one? 2 Kings 19.35 And it came to pass on a certain night that the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when the people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses, all dead. If you want to know <clears throat> roughly how many people that would be, imagine the entire stadium at the University of Georgia filled 
multiply it by two, that's how many people the angel killed by himself in a night. These guys are tough. Okay? So, an army of angels on Sinai. So, we, we've talked about the angels. Now, let's talk about the mediator. Who's the mediator? In the second half of verse 19, it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. This one's easier. The mediator would have been Moses. All the rules were given by Moses. Deuteronomy 33.4 Moses commanded a law for us, a heritage of the congregation of Jacob. If you want to go back and read the story of Moses, Moses was an incredible man. Very, It, it, it seems funny to me. I, I think this had to have been just a line penned later by someone not named Moses, even though the majority was. If you go and read the story of Moses, at one point, the first five books say Moses was the most humble man who ever lived. If Moses had written that, that would have been really silly. Um, hi, I was the most humble man you've ever seen. But no, Moses was an extremely humble man. He was an extremely gifted by God kind of man. That God had his back in a way that he did not have anybody else's back in the Old Testament. He did amazing things, but he was a mediator. This is the mediator that, God's, that Paul is talking about here. So, why did I go through all this mess about angels? And why did I go through all this mess about Moses being a mediator? Because these were characteristics of how all these rules got here. <clears throat> you know what these rules are intended to do? These rules are intended to remind you of everything that stands between you and God. Between Moses and God on that mountain was an army of angels. Between God and that army of angels and the people was Moses. That barrier after barrier after barrier after barrier after barrier. There was a separation between God and His people. Let me tell you why Jesus is greater than all these angels and why Jesus is greater than Moses and why you can look at the New Testament and you can look at the New Covenant and you can say, what I have is better than just a bunch of rules. Matthew 26, 53. Do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father, this is Jesus talking, and He will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? We're going to do some math. Y'all like math? We're going to do some math. The United Nations estimates that in AD 1, there were only about 300 million people alive on planet Earth. Okay? The whole planet. There are only about 300 million. There's about that many in the United States now. Okay? The whole world, though, in AD 1, there were probably only about 300 million. A Roman legion contained between 4,000 and 6,000 soldiers, and they were, they were called legionnaires. So if you want not the disease, military troops. So let's split the middle and say if it's between four and 6,000, let's say it's 5,000. Let's say a legion has 5,000 men in it. Jesus said he could call 12 of those. So 12 legions of 5,000 angels would be how many? That would be 60,000 angels. Now if we take the conservative destruction estimate from 2 Samuel, and assume that each of those 60,000 angels is capable of killing 70,000 people, Jesus had at His disposal enough angels to wipe out 4,200,000,000 people at the drop of a hat. 
That is enough to kill the entire population of 14 planet Earths in AD 1. Now to put in perspective, the people at Sinai were trembling with what Deuteronomy called ten thousands of his. This entire angelic army is terrified of Jesus. One person. Enough angels to wipe out 14 planets and they quake in their boots when Jesus speaks. This is the Jesus. Listen to me. This is the Jesus that laid down His heavenly glory to come directly for you. When we think of Jesus, little Jesus, meek and mild, oh, He's sweet, oh, He's so gentle. Yes, but it's not because He did not have the capability to do whatever He wanted. He is immeasurably stronger, immeasurably wiser, immeasurably more powerful than anything you could ever even possibly imagine. And yet Jesus came directly for you. The law was terrifying that the mountain shook, the mountain quaked. And if you, I don't need a quaking, smoking, fiery mountain to be scared by the rules. Turn back to the Ten Commandments and stare in them knowing that you can't come to God by that because if you've ever screwed one up, you're totally incapable of coming to God on your own righteous terms. You can't do it. That ought to be terrifying to you. That law stands between you and God. But when Jesus bursts onto the scene, He says, I'm not coming bringing my angels. I'm not coming with a mediator. I'm coming myself and I'm coming straight to you. And then over the mediator... Hebrews 3 verse 3 tells us, For this one has been counted of worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. That Moses was a faithful servant of God, but Moses wasn't God. He took orders. Jesus gives orders. Moses taught what he was told to teach, but Jesus, when he teaches, he teaches as one with authority, not like the scribes and the Pharisees. That Jesus outranks the angels that were at Sinai and He outranks the Moses that was at Sinai. That the law is inferior to what Jesus brings because Jesus brought it Himself. This, this blows my mind when I hear it. Do you understand when I say that Jesus brought the gospel to you Himself? It literally means that God Himself came down here to earth for you. For you. And if that doesn't excite you, let me tell you what the author of Hebrews says that that ought to mean for you. Hebrews chapter 2 verses 2 through 4. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward... 
How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. The author of Hebrews tells us, hey, when the law was given, when all of these rules were given that you have not been able to keep, every single one of them has received its just reward. That everyone who has lived under the law has received exactly what the law had to give them, which was condemnation and an honest appraisal of how good a person they are. Do you want to stand before God and say, God, I want you to judge me fairly based on how good of a person I am? If you want to do that, you're bolder than I am. And a little crazy. You don't want to stand before God and say, judge me on the basis of how good I am. Because that law that was mediated to you by angels and Moses, when you go before God, you say, God, here are the rules you gave me. Judge me on how I kept them. God's going to say, you don't want me to do that. Because you didn't keep them well. I didn't keep them well. Jesus came to bring mercy. Jesus came to bring you freedom. And the author of Hebrews says, if you ignored the law, how much more trouble do you think you will be in if you ignored the God who gave the law coming to you personally to give you mercy? The gospel is serious business, y'all. I'm not standing up here... The New Testament tells us to preach for people to obey the gospel. That God has commanded the gospel for everyone. Do you understand that when you hear the message of the gospel and you decide, eh, that's not for me. No, not today. It's not just a choice. It's disobedience. It's rebellion. That God has commanded for you to come to Jesus to be saved. That you trample underfoot, Hebrews 10, 28 and 29, anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? Jesus came for you personally and intends for you to respond. Why am I weeping when I hear about the cross? Why am I weeping when I hear about Easter? Because I understand that what Jesus was doing when He came was He said, Hey, that covenant that was brought to you by angels, that was brought to you by a mediator... All that's going to do, that's going to condemn you. You are a slave under it. You are lost under it. You are dead in it because you have no righteousness of your own. I'm coming for you personally to offer you my righteousness and life. All you have to do is trust me. That gives me life. That gives me joy. That gives me hope. But for you to reject that, if you hear the gospel and you reject it, then what you're doing is you're trampling all of that underfoot and you're saying, God, I didn't want your rules and God, I don't want your mercy. God, what I want you is for you to leave me alone. And the sad truth is, that's exactly what hell is. Anybody who has ever wanted for God to leave them alone has their prayer answered in hell. That's where God leaves you alone and never offers you his love. Never offers you his mercy. Never offers you his grace. Never offers you any help whatsoever. That hell is exactly what you wanted. 
for God to leave you alone. That's a chilling thought, isn't it? That's what the author of Hebrews is warning us about. That's what Paul is warning us about. That if you were scared of angels, why would you not be concerned about the one who the angels are scared of? If you are concerned by a law that was given to you by a mediator, wouldn't you be concerned about a gospel that is brought to you who is in charge of the mediator, who came to you directly? The law is inferior to the new covenant because there are all these middlemen. The new covenant cuts the middlemen out and it's God coming to you specifically. And in a few minutes when I give the invitation, God's going to be speaking to you specifically directly too. And you can repent and you can come to Him right then. I beg you, do not reject it. Do not trample the grace that God has given you underfoot. So first, the gospel is greater than the law because of its delivery. And then second, the gospel is greater than the law because of its terms. You know what I I still get excited about as a pastor is getting to study sermons. Um, I I get to go really in-depth with passages. It makes me really happy. And I never until prepping this sermon could wrap my head around verse 20 of Galatians chapter 3. I always love it when I can wrap my head around a verse in the Bible for the first time. Paul says, Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. What in the world's going on here? <clears throat> I felt kind of silly once I understood what Paul was saying because it's really clear. Let's do a thought experiment. Can you think of, is it possible for you to conceive of a married bachelor? Can you think about that at all? Does it make sense to you? No. Why? Because a bachelor, by definition, is an unmarried man. If I say bachelor, you know what that is. What about a round square? No, you can't think of that either. Because a square, by definition, has four sides and four points. So when I say square, you immediately think of a shape like that. When I say mediator... You can't think of a mediator for one person. Why? Because a mediator, by definition, means there's party A and there's party B. There's somebody in the middle. So Paul says a mediator doesn't just mediate for one person only. Well, the law had a mediator, didn't it? The law had Moses, which means there's somebody mediating between God And the people. It's a two-way covenant. I can prove this. Look at Leviticus chapter 26. This is on your handout. Verses 3 through the first half of 4a. And you can, this is a long chapter, and there are lots of things under these verses. Go read them if you want to be depressed. Leviticus chapter 26, verses 3 through 4a. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them, then I will. This is called an if-then statement. It happens in math. It happens in geometry. It happens in computer programming. It's the simplest binary judgment ever. If this happens, then this will happen. God says, if you obey me, then I will do this. Leviticus 26, verses 14 through 16. But if, if you do not obey me and do not observe all these commandments... 
And if you despise my statutes, or if your soul abhors my judgment, so that you do not perform all my commandments, but break my covenant, I will do this to you. If you don't do this, then I will. That's the old covenant. That it was, give, it was a two-way covenant. I'm going to give you these commands, and I'm going to give you the land. If you keep the commandments, I'll let you stay in the land. If you don't keep the commandments, I will take you out of the land. It's a two-way street. It's, a, it's effectively a contract. The mediator in the middle would have been Moses. It would have been this law. That's the way a lot of us think of God today. We think of Him in a transactional basis. If you think of God and you think, okay, I'm going to get up this morning, I'm going to read my Bible, I'm going to pray, I'm going to not cuss, I'm going to do this, 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 and this, so this is me obeying God's commandments, therefore I can expect God to do this for and with me. Transactional basis. I have kept my side of the contract, therefore He will keep His. You're thinking Old Covenant. You're also thinking the way just about every contract in this world works. If you do this, then I will pay you for this. You do this every time you go to a business and pay for something. I give you money, you give me goods. It's a contract. It's a covenant. If this, then this. <coughs> Old covenant. But Paul says, now a mediator doesn't mediate for one only, but God is one. What is he saying about the new covenant? The new covenant does not require a mediator because it is one-sided. What do you mean it's one-sided? Romans chapter 4, verses 2 through 4. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. If you want to know the passage that Paul is quoting from in Romans chapter 4, it is the 15th chapter of Genesis. It is a scary, almost kind of creepy kind of chapter, but not in a bad way. It's just It's got a very holy, reverent aura to it. And you can tell in the 15th chapter of Genesis that something very serious is going on. In the 15th chapter of Genesis, God comes to Abraham and tells him, I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. And Abraham says, well, who are you going to give all these promises to? Because I don't have an heir. And God promises, I'm going to give you an heir. And then God's, God tells him, I want you to cut some animals uh, in half and I want you to lay them out. This was an ancient covenant ceremony. And commentators and historians are split on how some all of this worked, but there were at least some covenants in the ancient world that whenever you would divide an animal in two, the people that were making the covenant with each other would walk in between the severed animals basically to say, if I break the terms of this covenant, or if we break the terms of this covenant with each other, may this happen to us. That was effectively their way of saying this covenant is ratified in blood and I'm staking my life on my fulfilling my word. At the end of Genesis chapter 15, guess who walks between the, the animals? God does. Abraham does not. God made this covenant one way. He did not demand anything of Abraham. All Abraham had to do was accept the gift that God was giving him. 
that God's word was that covenant. Now, it's fair to ask, you know, what, what does it mean to even say for God to say, you know, may, I, may this happen to me if I don't keep my word? That's not even an issue. God's going to keep his word. It's a picture of God saying, I'm good for this. I'm going to accomplish this. This is a promise from me to you. Do you see how that's different from the old law? If you've been living your Christianity as I'm going to do this, 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 so that God will like me, that's what I get out of this covenant, that's going to burn you out. One, because it's impossible, and two, because it's just flat exhausting to have a checklist of all these things that you've got to do every day, and eventually you're going to mess one up because we're broken people, and you're going to go into a spiritual depression, and oh my goodness, I haven't pleased God. He's going to take my blessings away from me. It's just sad. That's not the new covenant. The new covenant is God saying, I have made this promise to you. I will fulfill this. This is on me. Romans 4 says, Abraham 